Hey, it's Alex Pearson. This is On Point today on our podcast. We'll look into what polling says Canadians want to hear in the throne speech, and it has nothing to do with green experiments. We'll chat with um, Alan Cross about protest songs, specifically Van Morrison's new song attacking government and scientists over the coronavirus lockdowns. Protest songs aren't new. However, when you go against the popular opinion, you'll find yourself canceled. And we'll also talk with the horse trainer who worked with that young 14-year-old girl killed in Oakville Monday night, tragically dying when her horse fell into a marshy area and, um, and the young girl lost her life very tragically. Let's get going. Getting through to you. That's a point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. We know that a second wave is coming. We know that it will be more complicated than the first wave. We know it will be more challenging on the system. What we don't know is how bad it will be, how hard we will get hit. So the hit's coming. How harsh the second wave will be, I guess, depends on what we do. And with so many clearly checked out with pandemic fatigue, I'm not really sure we're in this together anymore. Alex Pearson here with you on this September 22nd. Month is just flying by. And this has been one of those crazy busy news days where a whole bunch of of stuff um, was happening. But definitely a new sense of urgency on COVID numbers which I will get to. But um, I I, I spoke with the trainer of that young 14-year-old girl who was uh, killed while riding her horse in Flamborough around 5.30 Monday night. And I I grew up riding horses and showing horses and owned four. So I was immediately struck by, you know, what is ultimately a, a freak accident. But, you know, her name is Zara and she was out riding with her mom. You know, nothing beats going out for a hack you know at this time of year in the woods and uh, the horses love it the riders love it. it's just a great way uh, to get out but it definitely it's a story that speaks to the dangers that can happen very suddenly certainly um you know this young woman had a lot of experience riding she had a very very top good coach and um you know horses were her passion but you know when you get with a live animal and something goes wrong um which happened in this case it just shows you how quickly life can turn so i'll I'll speak with her in the eight o'clock hour because it's just such a devastating uh, story but i want to start really with some kind of throwing some numbers out there that tell a story because we got new federal modeling today and it gives us an idea of how harsh this second wave could be Maybe it's really serious. I don't know. I mean, why else would the prime minister be addressing the nation tomorrow? Yeah, Justin Trudeau will talk to the nation 6.30, and we will carry his message live. And we're told by his office, it's all about telling Canadians about the urgency of this second wave. But then my cynical senses start to kick in because nothing in politics is never not political. So my gut says, hmm, this might just be Trudeau trying to get more airtime on his throw speech, you know. Uh, maybe show off all the free baubles he hopes to buy your vote with, or maybe step on any negative coverage of his scandal plague governor general, who he will be sitting beside as she delivers the throne speech, which is really strange. There's going to be a very big elephant in that room tomorrow. But there is a sudden sense of urgency this week, and we haven't heard in a while. And we were told pretty bluntly, 
Well, actually, we weren't told bluntly because no one in medicine actually gives a blunt message. They kind of give this word salad we're supposed to figure out, and, and then somewhere in there is a message. But I got through that message, and they were saying pretty bluntly, you know, if we keep being so casual with the rules, then Canada could see upwards of 155,000 cases by October 2nd, which is 10 days from now. And the data also suggests a further 9,300 people could die in this country. But it's all about perspective. And since the beginning of this pandemic, this country has seen 145,000 cases in total. But we now have kids in school. We've got businesses open. We've got the economies back up and running. And then, of course, we've got all these big gatherings and parties and complications. And so those in charge are, are warning, you know, if we keep up doing the parties and, and the bad behavior and, and breaking the rules, we could see 5,000 cases a day within a couple of weeks, which is a very big jump from what we're used to seeing and hearing and is way higher than what we've got right now, which is 1,700 cases a day in Canada. And this, of course, you know, people say, well, okay, well, what's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal if, if the hospitals get overwhelmed which right now they're in control, but we are actually starting to see more and more cases in hospital. But then you look back, and I went all through these numbers today. I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And when you look at the height of this thing back in April, we were reporting daily 2,700 cases a day. But when you look at the last seven days alone, we are averaging 1,058 cases a day, which is a really, really big jump from what we saw in August, which was about 300 cases daily. So you can doubt the, the experts and you cannot like them, but the, the numbers are what they are and they are absolutely going up. And it kind of explains why the premier started to sound a little bit more ominous today. I'm concerned, Cynthia. I really am. You know, we, we worked so hard and we were, we were below the 100 and all of a sudden we we knew this was coming. I heard it was heading up and heading up towards northern Michigan now. And, and the numbers, uh, you know, they're, they're climbing 500, maybe 700, maybe 1,000. But it's all hands on deck. So can the projections be wrong? Well, yes, of course. That's why they're called projections. They're kind of like a guesstimation based on uh, trends that we've seen before. But go back to those early days of the first wave. And I don't remember, like you might remember when Premier Ford, he stood up and, and said, like, I'm going to release the data. If I know it, you should know it. And in Ontario, he warned three to five, uh, 15,000 people could die just alone in this province and up to 300,000 could get sick. And when you look back, we've got the numbers now, 2,800 people in Ontario died and we ended up having 47.7 thousand cases, which is far, far less than worst case scenarios, which is great news. But the way we got those numbers low is, well, we shut down the entire country. And we can't do that again. We can't afford to do that again. And I hope to God we don't have to do that again. But that is why Dr. Tam came out today and sounded the alarm, you know, uh, bells saying, you know, giving the old, you can do it message. We have done this before. We know what works and we know we can work together to get this done. Young people were part of the collective solution to crushing the spring wave, and now, with high incidence rate in this age cohort, they are a critical element in the solution we need to ramp up the defences and stop a big resurgence from occurring. Inspiring. I'm sure all those youngsters are going to be very inspired by that. I mean, look, I don't... I don't for all my misgivings about Dr. Tam, I mean, I just don't think folks are going to buy into that plea this time because she's not at all convincing and there is no sense of urgency. You know, she's warning us that 
next week and this week, these next few days, we're at a crucial crossroad that what we do in the coming days determines how bad the second hit is and what happens to the country. But look, I mean, her message is anything but crystal clear and blunt. So I'm not at all confident that, uh, you know, people like Chair Girl and her friends will pick up what she's putting down. And the other thing is, you know, the first time around on this thing, people were much, much more willing to do their part. We just didn't know. You know, people were willing to lock down, give up freedoms. Now, eh, not so much. COVID fatigue's a thing. People are sick of this thing, tired of the virus, tired of the inconveniences, tired of the sacrifices, and, and folks are financially stressed. And seven months in, a whole lot of people trust these experts now because they got a lot of it wrong the first time. Remember, first it was no masks, then you had to mask, and then it was low risk, and then it was high risk. I mean, the messaging from the start has been very confusing, very muddled, and I think it's further confused by this patchwork approach to tackling this virus countrywide. You know, each province doing it differently. You hear a message every day that's different. So will folks heed the warning? I really hope they do. I'm not at all convinced they will. And so, you know, we've got numbers today nearing 500. And, uh, and we'll see where they go. I don't think they're going down. And the province released some of a, a, a part of the plan that they uh, have to deal with the second wave. And information will come out over the coming days. But it started today with this message, get your flu shot. And that means everyone. And that's why they've ordered millions more um, of flu vaccinations. But, you know, Ford's also issuing this urgent plea to get his buddies in Ottawa, you know, approve the rapid testing. I mean, what the heck are you waiting for? Because if we want to truly flatten this curve, if we want kids to stay in school, and with these rising numbers, we have to get the testing mastered. But we also have to get our handle on these numbers before true community spread starts to happen. And so will we th see things like, you know, targeted shutdowns? I, I don't know. I don't know what their plan is, but I, I, I do know this. They will not have as much success, I think, the second time shutting things down, given I think a lot of people just can't deal with it again. Great to have you here on this Tuesday. And uh, Justin Trudeau's made it very clear that now, now is the time to be bold and seize the moment while rebuilding Canada's economy. And what he meant is, you know, overhauling this country by bringing in some big, ambitious green projects that they insist will create jobs and usher in a lot of big spending to further nationalize things like pharmacare or even a guaranteed basic income. And, you know, while this may play well to the base, the question that we should ask is, what do Canadians actually want? And according to new polling by Ipsos, they may not want to be so ambitious. Daryl Bricker is CEO of Ipsos Polling. And uh, Daryl, you did some interesting polling on this particular issue. I mean, you dug into the top issues of what Canadians want. It's not climate change. It's not a race and equality issues. It's not even the emergency relief. They want jobs and the economy dealt with priority one. They want jobs and the economy and they want uh, assistance with fighting the pandemic. So uh, people are in a very urgent short-term frame of mind right now they want their lives back and they want to be safe so anything else that's not really related to that is really not of any interest to canadians right now it doesn't mean that they don't care it's just in this this current time frame it's not they're not seen as priorities 
Right. I mean, right now, CERB is starting to run out. Businesses that have desperately been trying to hold on can no longer hold on. So there's some real economic hardship that I think we're going to start to see in, in the coming weeks that got erased by summer and just being outdoors and enjoying it. I think the reality is going to hit Canadians pretty hard. But, you know, I was surprised by, by the numbers you, you found that most Canadians actually do think that the coronavirus uh, response is too big. And they actually want to see a plan in the throne speech for Trudeau to tackle these ballooning deficits, cutting taxes. But they also favor a long-term universal basic income, which is hard to square when you want taxes cuts, you know, cut as well as reigning in the deficits. Yeah, the thing that was interesting for me in the polling was all three of those things were equivalent. And it's like, you know, the old uh, the old line of you can have all three, but pick two. There's no combination of three that works. Uh, I, the way I would describe it is as follows. You can't spend a generation telling people that deficits are bad to all of a sudden turn it on their to turn it on its head and suggest to them that they're actually good. Uh, and there's people out there who are talking about that right now. They're not speaking for the average Canadian. The second thing is on uh, things that relate to uh, uh, programming and anything that has to do with what the government is is doing in terms of public spending. It has to be for immediate benefit. We're not thinking about what's longer term. When we think about tomorrow, we're literally talking Wednesday. So we're in the fight of our lives. We're in this fight against the pandemic. And big picture, big dream things that are going to pay off in the long term are not what we're looking for right now. Yeah, I, I think, you know, people want to know um, that there is stability right now. They don't want politics, which, uh, you know, it seems to kind of be starting to, to brew up a little bit. They just want, I think, at this point, some stability and to know that there is a plan. And we haven't heard a plan yet. Certainly um, give Canadians pause to figure out, you know, is this government the one that's going to take us to recovery? Not to mention, be the one to kind of take us through uh, these choppy waters that, you know, by messaging today, and I'm sure you've heard it, we've kind of in the last couple of days ramped up to a urgency situation with COVID-19 with cases going up. Right. And in fact, other polling that we did for for Global News uh, shows that 75% of Canadians uh, believe that we're going to hit a second wave. And the same number believes that we should be prepared to go through another major shutdown. So Canadians are really serious about this. And they want to know that their governments are on their side and just as serious. And that's in fighting the pandemic, not necessarily dream, dreaming big dreams. It's not that we don't like dream, big dreams. It's that we don't like them right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested about that polling because that number startled me. It shocked me. I, c- I couldn't figure out, like, who was asked? Are these people in the public sector? Are these people that don't own businesses? Are these people that um, are, are students? Because any private business owner that I speak to, uh, you know, anyone in private, even cl- including my husband, are saying, we cannot afford a second shutdown. And my concern is, with such a huge number urging or wanting a second shutdown, have they factored in the cost and the actual cull it will do to to small business owners? Uh, I wouldn't say that they're thinking that that we want one. What they're thinking is that we need to be prepared to have one. And what it does is it underscores how deadly serious they are about fighting this pandemic. Uh, And that's why they want to make sure that their governments are equally serious. So whatever the federal government decides it wants to bring forward in terms of a new plan uh, to... uh, uh, to to uh, deal with you know Canadians' uh, concerns over the next six months to a year, it, it needs to be focused on that, or it will be. I would say, you know, this is uh, uh, an overwrought term, but they would be wildly out of step with Canadian public opinion. 
And the liberals keep insisting that climate change is still as big a threat as this pandemic. But that talk does not match what you found, which is Canadians uh, about 10 percent asked. They don't see they see it as a priority. But by 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 far, uh, most Canadians don't want to be bothered with this issue right now uh, because they're just not in the mood to experiment. Well, and and also you can worry about these existential threats. Uh, in uh, periods like we did in the last federal election campaign, in which people uh, really, there weren't a lot of serious burning issues uh, of, of an immediate nature on people's minds. So uh, you could start worrying about things that were a little further up uh, Maslow's pyramid. But right now, since people are really worried about basic survival, it uh, doesn't mean that they're not concerned about the environment. It's just that they want to deal with other things first. Right. But it would be a mistake, I think, for, for Christian Freeland to table some throne speech that, um, you know, we've already know we know about the clean fuel tax. Um, but if they start coming out with these big, bold green initiatives, it could really backfire on them. It would be another one I would describe as being wildly out of step with Canadian public opinion. I think it, it would be all right for them to say that they aspire at some point to be able to deal with this. But right now, they, we really need to, to focus on getting people back to work and getting the health situation stabilized. That's what Canadians want to hear. And interestingly enough, just to go back to the question of deficits, uh, Canadians do not want to hear this is going to cost them uh, more than what you would need to spend in an emergency circumstance. So it's not like Dad just you know, got, got a new credit card that he didn't expect to get and he's now going to run it up. That is not the mood that Canadians are, are, are in at the moment. No, and there must be a reason that Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, staff sent out a notice to the media saying, you know, please make space at 6.30 for your uh, broadcast tomorrow. The Prime Minister wants to address the nation. That doesn't happen often or it, it hasn't in a while. Um, so either he wants to take ownership of the throne speech or, or send a very direct message about what's going on. There could be some politics at play, but no question. Whatever he says tomorrow is certainly going to, you know, tomorrow's a big day with the throne speech and him coming out addressing the nation. It will certainly kind of uh, be a deciding factor, I think, for a lot of Canadians. Yeah, it certainly will. And, and again, uh, given that the throne speech, which was supposed to kind of redefine everything and get us back on track and give the, the Liberals back the narrative on what was going to happen to the country, and now it's going to be a sort of a reduced set of expectations and programs and other things, um, then maybe this is the, the bold initiative to take back the narrative. Because you know as well as I do, Alex, that uh, a couple of days after the throne speech and we're done talking about that, we get right back into the we circumstance. And that's yeah. not something that the government wants to spend a lot of time talking about. Unless, of course, the cases continue to surge and we start hearing things of shutdown. I mean, there are ways politically you can kind of pivot away from from scandals and that. And, and they, they certainly have a lot of material to, to pull from. But, you know, the brunt of the provinces, well, the provinces are very much leading, you know, the 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 way into the second wave, this threat of the second wave. But there are some real vulnerabilities for Trudeau as far as how they've managed it. And I think whatever message comes out tomorrow, I mean, they're going to be asked about um, testing and all sorts of things like, why are we so late in having a plan released? So tomorrow, you know, could either which way uh, be either very good or very bad for him. Yeah, they have to seize back the leadership role in fighting the pandemic. And if they don't, uh, they'll simply be following the province's lead. And uh, they will be less relevant in the, in the eyes of Canadians, particularly as they try to demonstrate that they're capable of managing this crisis as they build towards probably an election sometime in the spring if we're able to get some of this behind us. Well, I had been just wondering this morning, where has Mr. Trudeau been? And is he going to let Christian Freeland kind of own the day? And then, of course, we got the news. He'll be on 630 Wednesday. And I said, nope, he's going to take the spotlight right back uh, and try to continue, you know, take over the messaging. Daryl, it'd be interesting to see what tomorrow um, brings us. And we'll see how it fits the narrative of what uh, you found Canadians want most. I appreciate your time.
Thanks for having me on, Alex. So one of the following have in common. Woody Guthrie. Bob Dylan. Public Enemy. John Lennon. Rage Against the Machine and pretty much everything Bruce Springsteen writes. Well, they've all uh, penned famous, iconic protest songs, songs that uh, mark moments in time and are still played and revered today. And then you enter Van Morrison. And Van Morrison, who I love, keep meaning to see him alive if I ever get a chance again, but uh, he's written a whole protest album and it's getting no love over the lyrics, which go everywhere from attacking the COVID lockdown, the scientists, and a virus which he very much questions its validity. So he sings about things like crooked facts, um, government overreach, losing our freedoms. And so critics would naturally like to mute him, mute Morrison. And I kind of look at it and go, well, if I muted every artist whose politics I disagreed with, I'd be uh, listening to nothing but dead air. But a guy who would know would be Alan Cross, host of uh, 102.1 The Edge, host of the podcast, The Ongoing History of New Music. Good to have you, Alan. Hi. All right. So protest songs are not new. Is there a particular one that stands out to you as being a great and effective protest song? In in the modern era, in the last 10 years? Uh, I'll, last I'll give you the last years? 30 years. <laughs> oh, last 30 years. <laughs> I'll well, give you a couple I'm... of decades. I would take anything, okay, if you define protest song as uh, any kind of song that rails against the status quo and perceived injustices in society and politics, uh, that's a pretty broad thing. I, I always tend to go to uh, you know bands like Rage Against the Machine or their uh, follow-up, Prophets of Rage, um, anything that uh, public, uh, public Enemy does. Mm-hmm. Is is fine with me. Those th- those are my protest songs, but you know I'm maybe of a different generation. The problem is we haven't really seen any um, protest songs to grab the the public's imagination uh, in the last twenty years um, because well, well I don't know why maybe maybe it's because back in the '60s and the '70s when protest songs well '50s '60s and '70s when protest songs were at their peak. Uh, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have social media. We didn't have email. We didn't have any of those things. We didn't have and woke people. We didn't have woke people. We well, well, we had woke people, but they communicated through through <laughs> yeah. music. Um, their 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 tribal drums, their 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 smoke signals were the songs that they heard on the radio, and that was especially true in the 1960s when mm-hmm. that is how people learned about what was going on in society. They listened to the radio. They listened to the songs. And that was how they, that's how consensus was created. I mean, if you listen to a song like uh, Ohio from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and, mm-hmm. and we go back to the 50th anniversary of, of Kent State, which is the thing that inspired that song. That song was recorded, written, recorded, and put on the radio in three weeks. And uh, that became this, this, this giant thing that fed into the Vietnam War protests, that fed into the anti-Nixon sentiment, and if you really want to look at it, it's that song was part of the beginning of the downfall of the, of the Nixon administration. Right. So here, here Van Morrison comes along and he's decided to, I mean, I guess he's he, he's pissed off, frankly. He's angry. And, and a lot of artists like Van Morrison had a lot of downtime, a lot of isolation. So they got to writing. And, and he says, you know, in a statement, I'm not telling people what to do or think. 
the government's doing a great job of that already. And so a lot of his writings in this newest uh, album are about government taking freedom. And he would not be alone in that opinion. And so while, you know, a lot of his colleagues are telling him to shut up or just tune him out, uh, there are a lot of people who, you know, there are so, so many unknowns of the COVID, but there are a lot of people that worry about government overreach. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's interesting that Van Morrison has actually backpedaled a little bit because um, he was all about, you know, not wearing masks. Uh, this whole thing is just overblown and COVID is is is, is destroying our our freedoms. You know, it sounded pretty, pretty MAGA to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know what? Fine. If you, uh, you know, I read a review of this album and it said, yeah, you know, enjoy the tunes. Just disregard the message. Which, by the way, I mean, a lot of artists I listen to, I mean, I, Pearl Jam, every time Eddie Vedder, I mean, talks at a concert, I have to just pretend he's not talking because he always talks politics. And I'm not, I'm not there to listen to the politics. I want to listen to music. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people, if, if you listen to the, you know, the words or whatever they say, I think a lot of people would be turned off just because politics is so partisan today. So there is a risk to artists weighing into this. But, you know, a guy like Van Morris, uh, you know, he's got a decades and decades of great writing and great musical talent behind them. So how do you think this will go over long term? Uh, I, I don't know. I think he will annoy some of his fans, but nobody goes to a Van Morrison show these days to listen to any new music they want to hear into the mystic and brown eyed girl. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, Van is a very cantankerous sort of guy marches to his own drummer has his own opinions and fine. If, if he wants to release an album like this, it is within his purview. Go right ahead, free speech and all that, but don't expect a lot of your fans to agree with, with what you're saying. And I'd be very, very be surprised if, if any of these songs become staples in this live set. Yeah. I don't, I don't suspect we'll hear them on uh, radio rotation. Have you heard any of the album? Do you have a review for it? Do you have, have you heard any of the tunes at least? You know, bits and pieces. Uh, Van Morrison has a style and sound. Uh, there is nobody that sounds like him. And mm-hmm. again, if you listen to the melodies and the arrangement and the singing, I mean, it's 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 Van Morrison. But if you start listening to, you know, having read what he said about the COVID situation before the album, before this, these new tunes came out, it was like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of colored my perception of the whole thing. So. Maybe I'll just skip this record. It doesn't really matter because, you know, he's got like 50 some albums and there'll be another one in six months anyway. Well, you know, it could always become also used at a, a, a Donald Trump campaign. So there is that, you know, he might get himself a new, a new fan, fan base. Well, he might. I mean, there are people who, who agree uh, with this, the government overreach about forcing people to wear masks. Yeah. And I, I know that he doesn't like that idea of people wearing masks. I, he's going to be driven nuts if he's in the UK and he starts, he realizes that his pub is closing at eight o'clock uh, starting next week. So uh, yeah, I, I, I understand, but at the same time, uh, it's just a stark difference between how I think how Canadians view the whole um, mask thing versus how some people in the rest of the world view it. What is it? Uh, 77% of us say that wearing a mask in public is a, is the right thing to do. It's socially responsible. It's, 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 it's how to look after each other. But there are other parts of the world where, no, it's, you're, in, you're, into, you're, you're intruding on my individual rights, my, uh, my, my, my rights as a person, as a, and, and you can't tell me what to do regardless of, of what the outcome will be for anybody. 
We will see what uh, happens on its release and how it does. But uh, appreciate you joining me, Alan, always. Thank you. You're very welcome. That is Alan Cross joining us here tonight. Of course, you can hear him because he is the voice and the brains behind the ongoing history of new music. Holly Jacks, uh, you were Zara's trainer, and it would have been um, last night would have been the ultimate perfect night to go for a hack with the weather. You know, you get the horses out exercising; it's great for the rider. And Zara was an experienced rider, but obviously something went terribly, terribly wrong, and uh, it, it's really rocked your world. Yeah, um, I think it's one of those things that you can add up to a freak accident. Uh, Zara was a very experienced rider and a very experienced horse person. Um, she did everything right. It was what you chalk up to an accident. And take us through, I mean, what she was like. I mean, she was 14, so a lot of people will say, hey, she's too young to know. But by 14, I mean, she probably started very young. I mean, this was not a hobby for her. This was a passion. So she did have quite a bit of experience. Um, so first word I can describe Zara is she's an old soul. I mean, she wasn't just a student. She was a friend. She spent the winter in Florida with me. Um, she was always did the best thing for her horses. She put her horsemanship before winning, which you don't find with kids anymore, but it always paid off and she had a lot of, you know, first places behind her because her horsemanship was so strong. Um, she was one of the youngest kids in the GRIP program, which is a program through Ontario Equestrian for up-and-coming talent. And uh, she worked hard for everything she did. She wasn't a kid that came into this as a spoiled kid. She put all her time in and put her horses first. She was an incredible kid. And so, you know, when I first heard about this, you know, my, my first instinct as a rider is that you would want to stay with the animal when they get into trouble. So you try to navigate any which way because the bond is that strong between rider and horse. And ultimately, her mount, uh, Vince, 14 years old, so not young, but certainly not old, um, did end up making it, but she didn't. And, and I, I have to think that she probably likely was more worried about Vince than herself. 100%. Um, she stayed with him. She, yeah, I think she was part of the reason he's here, for sure. What did she want to do? I mean, did she, you know, I mean, Canadians don't realize how much talent we have in this country for horseback riding. We have one of the best, we have the best riders in the country. I mean, our Canadian equestrian is just stacked with up and coming new and young riders. Did she have those kinds of dreams? And was this what she ultimately wanted to do? 100%. Um, I mean, she did correspond at school for grade eight last year and came down to Florida to train. She was one of the kids her mom never had to get after her to do school because school was important to her as well. She was an overachiever in everything that she did. Um, she took extra time. If I asked for 90%, she gave 110. She was never one of those kids I had to beg about what to do with her horses or get her schoolwork done so she can ride every single thing she did. I mean, as I said, she was an old soul. She, uh, she, she wanted, she was on the GRIP program. She wanted to represent Canada as the North American Young Riders in the next few years, uh, which is kind of like our Junior Olympics. And uh, you couldn't have picked a more deserving kid to try and do that. And when you're competing at that level, because you mentioned Florida, and Florida, of course, uh, in the horse world is a, is a big area where showmen, show jumping, 
uh, hunter and jumper. That It's a big competitive area when you're not competing here in Canada during the summer on the A circuit or in the circuit. So a lot of people go down there. And the fact that she went there with you, um, I mean, not only does it tell me how serious she was about the sport, but, but the skills she had. Yeah, she... Uh so she's a three-day eventer, so she doesn't do the hunter jumper. She's a three-day eventer, and she went down with a horse that she leased from another student of mine, and then we ultimately found her partner down there, who she bought from another Canadian rider, um, who was retiring from the sport, and we just thought that they were a great partnership to go into the future together. But it is the coach and the rider. I mean, the horse and rider is a special um, combination and a special magic happens between horse and rider. But there's also a very special connection between coach and rider because you want to teach the skills and the discipline. Um, and that kid on that horse just so very much wants to, to learn and please really their coach. She was an absolute joy to teach. I could push her harder than I could push both my students because she just took it and she just... You know, I think in today's day and age, it's all about, you know, it's, it's hard to be a good coach because people get offended if, you know, you say the wrong thing and you just, like, you know, push me harder. And, you know, she she just gave it all. She laid it on, all on the table and she was a joy to coach. I don't remember. I don't have a bad memory of Zara. I have to think that the barn and, and all of the, uh... Of her um, fellow uh, students, I mean, they, they've got to be absolutely devastated. How do you, um, you know, how do you, how do you move forward with this? I mean, obviously for her family, it's a whole other challenge. But for you, you've got to go back to that barn and um, and reassure your students and um, and carry on. But it's going to be a very heavy weight. I think, yeah. I mean, I think that everyone is there for each other. All the students are grouping together to try and do things um, in support of Zara. Obviously, it's a trying time with COVID right now. Um, mm-hmm. But she, uh, everyone is chipping in and just trying to do do things in her memory. Her parents want that. Her parents want people to remember her as an athlete and a person. And so we're just trying to get together as a group and cherish her memory and keep it in a positive light. Yeah, there's no question, you know, that when she went out for that ride, um, never would have imagined that this could happen. But it does certainly speak to the dangers of the sport and to, um, you know, just, as you said, how quickly things can go wrong and, and the ultimate cost that can be paid. Um, Holly, I thank you so much for joining us, and I wish you and your um, your barn and, uh, of course, her family the very, very uh, best from us. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is your podcast for today. Of course, you can join us live on point Monday through Friday, 630 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson.